0: Australia's leading voice.
1: Good evening and thank you for your company at the beginning of a new week. Another big week ahead, only 12 days until the fair dinkum polling day, May 21. Mind you, pre-polling began today, that's another story. There are specific legislated rules which entitle you to pre-poll. As Senator James McGrath said on this program last week, people just wander up to pre-poll. No one asks if they have a statutory entitlement to poll to vote ahead of Election Day. It is ridiculous. We have an election day set for May 21, yet up to half of eligible voters will vote ahead of May 21. And it paves the way for all sorts of voter fraud, including multiple voting. Donald Trump is right when he says the elections of first world democracies are slowly deteriorating into that of a third world country. Anyhow, Anthony Albanese will join me shortly. According to today's news poll, Albanese could be Prime Minister in 12 days. Tonight, I'll also be joined by perhaps the only Liberal candidate who has the chance of taking a seat from Labor, Andrew Constance. He is, as you most probably know, a former New South Wales Treasurer who did a splendid job in the New South Wales transport portfolio, despite all the hospital passes thrown his way. Nine times out of ten, if there was anything happening with the Berejiklian government over the past few years, it was dropped onto Andrew Constance's desk. I don't know how he did it. Not only that, his state electorate of Bega was devastated during the bushfires. He was there with victims every step of the way and continues to fight for people who've lost everything and are still wearing other people's clothes. Andrew Constance is now the Liberal candidate federally for the federal seat of Gilmore, held by Labor's Fiona Phillips, with a margin of 2.6%. She's a fairly formidable opponent, I can tell you. Gilmore will be a key seat in this election. It covers parts of the South Coast and the southern Illawarra of New South Wales, including the entirety of the cities of Shoalhaven and Kiama. Tonight, we'll cross to Andrew Constance, who's been out campaigning all day. Now, remember to tell your friends and family how to watch. Just head to the adh.tv website and click Watch Now, and you can have your say, email me, Jones at adh.tv. Now, as I just said, with less than a fortnight to go, It may well be if people haven't already made up their minds that the election contest has taken a significant turn. The question is, who will it favour? According to today's news poll, it has worsened the position for the Morrison government and strengthened the position for Labor. Albanese is hammering on about compassion. According to the polls, it is biting. We're talking, of course, about cost of living. The inflation spike and the consequential rise in interest rates has drawn attention to what are called cost of living issues, which basically means household bills, electricity, housing, mortgages, wages, vegetables, meat. It was always inevitable that the extraordinarily cheap money couldn't last. Nonetheless, the government is defending a stack of marginal seats in Perth, Brisbane and Tasmania, and the reality is, often unfairly, governments get blamed. What is called the hip pocket nerve has suddenly become very sensitive, and the pain is driven by the increase in prices for things that families can't do without. On top of that, there is a widening gap between the increase in prices and the stagnation of wages. Inflation figures like this in the middle of an election campaign are always bad news for government, especially a government running on its economic record with an opposition hammering the decline in the purchasing power of the take-home pay. And while Josh Frydenberg provided relief for some In the budget, like for example, halving the petrol excise or $250 cash handouts, these are temporary. The price pressures are permanent and they're felt with necessities such as food and health and fuel and the mortgage repayments. It is not a sensible tactic to try to argue that inflation and employment figures are much better than they are in comparable rich countries. That doesn't cut it with the average voter having to put stuff back on the supermarket shelf because he or she can't afford it. In Perth, the coalition has three seats at risk of being lost to Labor. Headline inflation there is 7.6%. The price of new homes in Perth rose by 16% in the March quarter. And because vacancies are at historically low levels, Perth rents, like everywhere else, have climbed. In Darwin, rent is up by over 11%. And the coalition is trying to win Solomon. In Brisbane, inflation is way ahead of the national average, and Labor have got their eyes on three seats. And in Tasmania, the coalition holds Bass by 0.4% and Braddon by 3.1%. The thing is, neither party is anywhere near offering solutions to what is plundering the hip pocket. And given the modern day disposition to plonk children in child care, the out of pocket costs there have risen by nearly 15% since the last election, which is almost double the rate of inflation. Put another way, the rise in inflation since March last year is 8.6%, but the cost of childcare in the same 12 months since March last year is up 14.8%. Childcare is a significant economic issue. Albanese is making it a central component of his campaign. I warned this would happen months ago. If the cost of childcare becomes exorbitant, one of the parents may well consider whether working is worthwhile. Or if parents decide that there is a day of childcare they can't afford, that may well push a childcare worker out of work. Common sense tells you that early care education is now a source of great financial pain. If the industry has seen limited wage growth, and now for parents, significant cost of living pressures, and now the mortgage cost has gone up, And on top of that, families are grappling with a 15% increase in the cost of childcare. It doesn't add up. Something's got to give. I thought one of the most disturbing consequences of all these announcements last week about inflation and interest rates and the escalation in the price of groceries came from the boss of one of the nation's largest independent supermarket chains, Richie's. The Chief Executive, Fred Harrison, said he knew rising food prices were starting to hit household budgets because he'd noticed mince meat sales increasing. In other words, mince is a cheaper kind of meat, mince sales are starting to lift, and this is a telltale sign all summed up in the disturbing truth of last week, that inflation had accelerated to its fastest pace in more than two decades. And at the checkout, meat, fresh fruit and packed groceries have seen prices rise far beyond the anemic rise in wages. How this affects the voter in fewer than two weeks is impossible to determine. But one thing seems certain, cost of living and the sluggish growth in wages will be very much on voters' minds when they go into the polling booth on May 21. Well, my first guest of the week is the man who could be Prime Minister in 12 days' time. Anthony Albanese, thank you for your time. Can thank I you have... very much,
2: Alan. Thanks for having me on
1: the program and congratulations. Thank you. It's a big project, I've got to tell you. Could I just ask you a personal question? You've been in Parliament for 26 years. You were at one time Deputy Prime Minister under Rudd's second term. You've been Minister for Infrastructure, a Minister for Regional Development, local government, and then Deputy Prime Minister under Kevin Rudd's second coming. Why is it that people say they don't seem to know you? Is it your fault or the public's
2: fault? No, I think, I think some of that is just a spin from the government. But it is true that during the pandemic... We had unprecedented circumstances. You had state premiers, uh, chief ministers, you had chief health officers doing press conferences every single day. And what we were during the pandemic was constructive. We weren't out there trying to do look-at-me approaches of just opposing for opposition's sake. Uh, We were constructive and that meant that the the bandwidth, if you like, uh, for myself as the, the Labor leader and the opposition leader, uh, was less. Uh, if we had have uh, been uh, destructive, if we had have been just there carping at the sidelines, but we weren't. We were constructive. We were putting forward constructive ideas like wage subsidies. We were concerned about the rollout of the vaccine to make sure it happened earlier. And that meant that we didn't get as much attention as we would have All right, have well, otherwise. let's just cover this
1: because as Prime Minister, you would represent the nation around the world. And even though they might dislike the Morrison government, they're genuinely worried it seems about Anthony Albanese being Australia's face to the world. How do you address that?
2: Well, I'll tell you one thing I wouldn't do, Alan, which is to leak private text messages uh, from other uh, national leaders, from our allies. And uh, that occurred, of course, uh, with Emmanuel Macron, uh, with Mr Morrison. And I think that will cause world leaders to really pause in their engagement with him. And uh, that was of real concern. Uh, I have represented Australia at the first ever G20 meeting. I know President Biden, I know uh, our allies uh, well, and uh, I have met uh, Prime Minister Johnson. I wouldn't say that I know him well, but I met him when he was leader of the the London Council. Uh, But I've engaged uh, in international forums uh, for a considerable period of time. Uh, as a a senior minister in the former Labor government.
1: Look, it's just a curiosity, I don't dwell on this, but how could someone, people are asking and writing to me, how could someone sitting in Parliament for 26 years, sitting at the dispatch box opposite a government, boringly repeating, in order to seek advantage, an unemployment rate of 4%, a cash rate of 0.1%, and then you didn't know that either. Do you understand that worries people?
2: No, Alan, one of the things that I'll do, and my opponent will never do, If there's a mistake, I'll I'll fess up, it was a a, a human thing to happen. Uh, I did have a a memory lapse at that particular point uh, in time. I fessed up, I took responsibility for it. What What they're worried about is who has a plan for Australia's future. And the truth is that this government is struggling with the present let alone having a plan for the future. Well,
1: just talking about the future, just before we move on to this cost of living, and I don't want to dwell on this either, Victoria has been a Labor Party stronghold. There's now been an anti-corruption commission and a leaked report and it's draft conclusions which found that the culture within the Victorian ALP was unethical and led to the misuse of public funds and provided jobs for factional mates. How do you ask voters on Saturday week to support Labor in Victoria, which would be an endorsement of this stuff?
2: Now, one of the things that I did, Alan, as the Labor leader was intervene into both the New South Wales branch of the Labor Party, but also the Victorian branch of the Labor Party. I appointed, uh, along with Daniel Andrews, we appointed Steve Brax, uh, the former Premier, and Jenny Macklin uh, to clean up the branch, to make sure that those issues were dealt with. We removed 4,000 people uh, from the roles uh, in Victoria, making sure that we stamped out any of these practices. Where I see wrongdoing, I will act. And that stands in stark contrast as well. We have a candidate in Queensland for uh, Scott Morrison in the electorate of Lily, who the Australian Electoral Commission have uh, have referred to the Australian Federal Police over his electoral enrolment. A very, very serious issue indeed. Nonetheless, Anthony, I mean, this report in Victoria,
1: when I'll just finish here, it said these unethical practices are embedded within the Victorian Labor branch and are systemic to all the factions. Now, Victorian Labor is asking the voter to vote for them on Saturday. How does the voter get
2: around that kind of criticism? We've cleaned up the branch, Alan. We took strong action. We expelled people uh, from uh, the Labor Party uh, in Victoria, including uh, state MPs, including I took action against John Setka, the head of the CFMEU. I took strong action. Where I see wrongdoing, I'll act. Uh, The current uh, Prime Minister sees wrongdoing and just waves it all through. In your launch last weekend, your basic
1: premise was that you'd make things better and you would shape the future. You launched in Perth. The Coalition has three seats at risk. Headline inflation there, 7.6%. The price of new homes in Perth rose 16% in the March quarter, rents have gone through the roof. But the cost of living is about, as you know, the cost of everything that people buy, which they can't do without. Now, this is not a gotcha question, but when 27-year-old Laura from Mount Isa, talking about the cost of groceries said, if you visit Brisbane or the Sunshine Coast, capsicums aren't $14.90 a kilo. How does Laura suddenly find capsicums would be cheaper under an Albanese government?
2: What Laura will find is that we have practical measures to take pressure of cost of living. If Laura has kids, there'll be cheaper childcare for 96% of people, and I'm sure that would include Laura. We'll have cheaper energy prices by $275 cheaper by 2025. We'll have cheaper medicines if she needs them for herself or her family. We'll make it easier to see a doctor. We also have a range of measures on housing affordability as well. We also have a plan to lift wages so that Laura or her family, in terms of their their work, can be paid a a more secure wage. Alan, one of the things that concerns me about this country right now is we have 500,000 Australians who are working three jobs or more. They're really doing it tough. And the government, if you look at its advertising during this election campaign, uh, where it's all, uh, all assumes that life is easy for people. I know that people are doing it tough, well, which is why we need that structural change to look after Okay, people. well, look, we've got another campaign here,
1: election being fought on climate change. How is your policy different from the government's policy? Both of you talk about net zero by 2050, but you're talking about significant reductions by 2030, 43% on 2005.
2: How do you get to that? How you get to that firstly is by fixing transmission. That's the low hanging fruit. We need to make sure that renewables can plug into the grid so that we get, uh, we know that the cheapest form of new energy is renewables. If you plug it into the grid and make sure you fix transmission, that makes an enormous difference. In addition to that, giving people more access uh, to renewable energy through community batteries. But, but just let me uh, get you make to the, electric vehicles the, and cheaper and
1: get, as well. Just let me get to the guts of this, though, because you've got to reduce net zero carbon, uh, carbon emissions by 2050. You're talking about cutting them by 43% by 2005. Now, you've set a limit of 100,000 100, tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, you've named 215 or you've nominated 215 companies who exceed 100,000 tons of carbon dioxide a year, or they call it carbon, it's carbon dioxide. If they emit more than 100,000 tons,
2: what happens? Won't those companies have to buy permits? Well, this is the same mechanism, Alan, that was actually established with the same number of companies, with the same limit, that was established by Tony Abbott's government. Be very clear, the 215 companies were identified by the Safeguard Mechanism, as it was called, which was legislation introduced by Greg Hunt as the Minister in Tony Abbott's government. Mm. Business are saying they want that certainty. Yep. That's why our plan has been endorsed by the Business Council of Australia, the Australian Chamber yep. of Commerce and Industry, the Australian Industry Group, and but the National Farmers Federation. But just let me go to the
1: point, Anthony, if they emit more than 100,000 tonnes, this is the key point, they'll have to buy carbon credits. And they sold last year in Australia for $40 a tonne, in Europe somewhere 100 bucks a tonne. I mean, this is a gift to international banks. They trade in carbon credits and make money from them. So isn't it true that your policy in targeting these companies nationwide that have exceeded 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide equivalent will have to buy carbon credits at a very
2: significant aggregate cost? Well that will be a a decision that they make of how they deal with the mechanism that was put in place by the Abbott government. But Alan, i make this point. More than two-thirds of those 215 companies have a commitment already for net zero by 2050. A, a, A large number of them have much higher targets than what we have of 43%, including major resource companies and the reason why is because that the shift to clean energy is about economics. It's about reducing their overheads and their costs. Yeah, but the and excess
1: is Tony, I, Anthony, I want to make this point, I'm sorry because That is what's driving the change. We're talking about jobs here. I mean, the excess of those 215 companies is about 189, billion, uh, 189 million tonnes of carbon dioxide. Now, if you take that at $40 a carbon credit, they're going to be billed seven and a bit billion dollars on 215 companies. Someone's going to lose their job.
2: That's not right, Alan. We did modelling through Reputex, Australia's leading energy economists. And what they found was 604,000 jobs will be created as a result of our policy. Five out of every six of them, importantly, in regional Australia. And what we've seen with the shift that occurs. We we know Liddell, for example, the power station. There used to be a debate saying keep Liddell open. It's closing on this government's watch. Why? Because the economics is going in that direction. But see if you that were running Anthony, if you were occurring. running
1: one of these companies and you had to buy carbon credits, wouldn't you close the company down because you could go overseas to
2: a cheaper jurisdiction? I mean it's No, this Alan, what... because what's happening? What's happening on the ground is that companies are are shifting are shifting because they want to reduce their costs. That is something that is going on. I visited... So they won't have to buy carbon credits? I I visited... Well, they're shifting, Alan. I I visited... I'll give you one example. Uh, Rio Tinto's aluminium operations uh, just outside of Gladstone. Now, they're they're a major major company. Uh, They are going to be using hydrogen in their system to reduce their emissions. That's happening between now and 2030. There's an enormous shift going on. We're very confident about our policy providing so, that investment certainty it's, it's, in order so to so go you're forward. Saying, you're saying that
1: those 215 companies
2: will emit less
1: than 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide and they won't need to buy carbon,
2: credit, <coughs> carbon no, credits. No, I'm not saying that. <clears throat> I'm That's saying, not credible. I, I'm not saying that, Alan. What I am saying is that companies are responding to uh, the market by reducing their costs and are investing in reducing their emissions. But they've got to buy carbon credits if they go over 100,000 tons. I understand that, Alan, but how about... Well, isn't that a carbon tax? No, it's not, Alan. Well, if it is, it was one that was introduced by Tony Abbott, is what you have to argue. But Uh, these are
1: all trade-exposed companies. Coal mines,
2: gas projects, steel makers. Now, one uh, of the things in our policy, Alan, and this is important, is that uh, emissions-intensive trade-exposed industries, right, ETs, as yes, they're known, yes. they will not face, not face any uh, onerous duties, if you like, higher than their international competitors. But then you won't get to your target of 43%. Than their international competitors. If that's but, the a case. Range of com- but a range of companies will be reducing. Uh, that's the analysis that has occurred, Alan. We want to make sure, one of the things that I've been determined to do with this policy is to make sure that what we don't do is put in place a policy that just sees carbon emissions shifted overseas. That makes no difference to global emissions. But if trade-exposed companies- And we know that this is a global issue. Yeah, but Anthony, if trade-exposed
1: policies are going to get special treatment, you won't get to your 43% by
2: 2030. We will, Alan, and that is why it has been addressed. And And a number of the companies, a number of the companies, including major resource companies, have uh, targets that are much higher than 43% by 2030, much higher. Some of them have uh, quite considerable targets by 2025, others have 50% or 60% by 2030. So we wanna make sure that this drives down drives down emissions, but also keeps Australian businesses competitive, which is why we have, in our policy, an an assessment. There'll be no impact in terms of no closure of any mines, no closure of businesses which are trade exposed. That is all there in our policy.
1: Anthony, I'm saying you won't get get to 43% reduction by 2030. The
2: analysis by Reputex shows that we will. And indeed, the government's own claim, by the way, they, they have a target of 26 to 28%, but their own claim is that they'll get to 35 So okay. that's already baked in. Right. Our policy that will see additional support for electric vehicles by taking uh, taxes right. off electric vehicles, okay. community batteries, just, fixing transmission, just, all of those measures what, right. add up to that figure. Okay. I just want to make one point,
1: and, and I'll go on to one other thing before we go. I'm simply saying that if they emit more than 100,000 tonnes, they're going to have to buy carbon credits and that will be a tremendous cost to 215 businesses. And if you say trade exposed companies are going to get special treatment, then you won't get to that 43% reduction by 2030. But just before we go, I live sheep I expor- respectfully disagree, Alan. Yeah, okay. Live sheep exports is a big issue in WA. Uh, are you going to ban live sheep exports, which are worth millions and millions of dollars to the WA economy, and McGowan doesn't agree with that policy, does he?
2: What, what we've said is two things, Alan. Uh, one, that we'll maintain the uh, ban that's there now uh, in the northern summer, okay? So that that's something that's in place, has been put in place uh, by the current government and, and we'll maintain that. The other thing is, is that we'll look to, to a phase out. We haven't got a timeline on that because we want to work with Mark McGowan's government, and work with industry to get a good outcome here. A good outcome for sheep farmers, but a good outcome as well for animal protection.
1: Well, Mark McGowan says, I think the measures that are in place are appropriate.
2: Why would you dismantle them? Well, we'll work with Mark McGowan and his government. He's a good friend of mine, as you know, Alan. He launched my campaign uh, in this national election. We'll work with him, uh, but we'll also work with the industry to make sure that we get a good outcome at the last election, there was a time frame on the phase out. Uh, we've removed that. One of the things that has happened uh, in this industry, that it has reduced in size. Uh, there are ways as well, if we can value add here and create more jobs here, that's one way in which we can actually get that economic value out of uh, the hard work of our okay. farmers. Good to talk to you. We could talk all day. I really thank you for your time. Thank you, I'm, Alan. I'm, I'm, and it's, it's, a, it's a privilege to be on, on your program so early. Thank I, you. I, I congratulate you. And I, you. I look forward to coming on uh, in the future. In a different capacity, perhaps. <laughs> well, that, right. that's the objective here, that's Alan. The objective. Good to talk to you. Thank you for your time. There
1: he is, Anthony Albanese. According to the polls today, he will be Prime Minister in 12 days' time. Well, the former widely respected Prime Minister John Howard is not the only person who's entered the fray on the so-called teal independence. At the launch last month of the Benelong campaign, and a good candidate there, Stephen Kennedy, John Howard branded the teal movement anti-liberal groupies. How else do you describe a group of candidates running only in Liberal seats? And as John Howard said, if they were genuine independents, they'd run in some strong Labor seats. The other astonishing factor is they're running against Liberal candidates or members who hold identical views to theirs on climate change and, for many, on a so-called integrity commission. Work that out. Look, let's be blunt, this group of candidates lays claim to integrity when it is their lack of integrity that ought to be the concern. These people are at the centre of what Paul Kelly, the editor-at-large of The Australian, rightly described as a sustained revolt in the heartland of the Liberal Party and, quote, may politically decapitate the Liberal Party. His point is very valid when he says the independents seek not reform of the Liberals but their destruction as a governing force, unquote. The medical academic running against Treasurer Frydenberg in Kuyong wants a 60% emissions reduction target in eight years' time, way ahead of anything that even Labor seek. She's attacked the border protection system. She wants to ditch offshore processing, but above everything else, there's not one of these candidates who'll tell us who they want to govern Australia. In other words, in a hung parliament, who would these teal independents support? Yet this is an election to determine just that, who will govern the country. Monique Ryan in Kooyong is a former member of the Labor Party. Like Allegra Spender in Wentworth, like all of them, should they say they'll support Labor, their campaign would be dead in the water. They want to talk about integrity yet they dishonestly refuse to declare who they would back. When a block of independence runs only against Liberal candidates and not Labor MPs, they're axiomatically on Labor's side. This is an organised movement running on climate change and Integrity Commission and Justice for Women, but on the most important issue, who they want to govern the country, they are conveniently and dishonestly silent. Well, Senator Andrew Bragg has raised a further issue, and that is Holmes at court, The Climate 200 founder sits on the board of the Smart Energy Council. It's a charity, and under the laws governing charities, they are forbidden from promoting political parties or candidates. Andrew Bragg, the New South Wales Liberal Senator joins me. Andrew, thank you for your time. Just on this Smart Energy Council, first it's a registered charity with the Australian Charities and Not-for-Profit Commission. Donations are fully deductible, and yet here is, homes at court on the board of the Smart Energy Council, promoting a group of political candidates conspicuously in opposition to the Liberal Party. What should happen?
3: Well, thanks, Alan. I mean, if you want to be a charity, then be a charity. But you can't be a charity and be a political campaigner because that's against the law. So the Smart Energy Group is effectively now directing people to vote in a particular way, uh, thereby uh, not keeping faith with the legislation as it stands. So I've asked the Charities Commission to investigate this with a view to stripping them of their status.
1: Now Holmes of courts on the board of this outfit, the Council's Government Relations Spokesperson Wayne Smith once worked for Anthony Albanese, the Council's Chief Executive John Grimes appeared last Tuesday at a function alongside Allegra Spender and then of course we had this exercise in Brisbane, the same Wayne Smith President of a Greens event, in the seat of Ryan. And following the Greens' policy announcement that there should be grants for home and business owners to switch from gas to electricity, Grimes, the Smart Energy Council CEO, said he was pleased to have joined the Greens' leader, Adam Bant, for the launch, and he praised other Greens' initiative. So has anyone responded
3: to your concerns? And to add to that, they've also been uh, holding out the call flutes of Allegra Bender and Sophie Scamps at their function last week in Sydney. So they are now directly campaigning for individual candidates in these seats. So uh, I've asked the Charities Commission to look at it. Um, I'll be chasing them down because it's really important that charities don't uh, become campaigners. I mean, if people want to be a campaigner, be a campaigner, but don't use your deductible gift recipient status. But that's not
1: even the point, though, is it, Andrew? I mean, under, under the Act, this behaviour is forbidden. It's unlawful. Unlawful. So you're calling for the charities regulator to investigate whether this outfit, the Smart Energy Council, linked to Homes Accord, should be deregistered for what you've called, quote, clear, direct and repeated breaches of laws forbidding charities to promote political parties. I mean, it's pretty obvious, isn't
3: it? It is pretty obvious, but it's been notoriously hard to get the charities regulator to strip in the organisation of their gift recipient status. So, but this is the most egregious example of disgusting behaviour on behalf of a, a charity. So they really do need to move very quickly.
1: And these so-called independents say they're campaigning on transparency, but the most important issue on transparency is how would they vote in the event of a hung
3: parliament? Hmm. And they won't tell us. Well, they've also been quite dodgy with the concealment of donations, like Sally Stegall did this uh, earlier this year. There's been a whole lot of you know, significant integrity issues, but I agree with you that uh, if you can't say who you'll support in a hung parliament, then you've got no integrity.
1: Well, I mean, if an independent candidate running for the seat of Kuyong, the seat of the Liberal Party founder Robert Menzies, were to say she'd be voting for the ALP, her campaign would end there and then. That's why they're being dishonest about all this, surely?
3: Well, I mean, they've got a threadbare policy agenda and they won't say who they'll support. So it's a huge risk to the country And at this this time where we've got massive geopolitical problems and uh, economic shock, uh, we do need to have some stability here. So uh, it's a massive risk.
1: Senator Andrew Bragg, let me ask you this. Mm. Are people like Fred Cheney and Malcolm Turnbull any better, dumping on the party that put them into parliament and advocating a vote for these same independents? Turnbull saying if more of these teal independents win, it'll stop the capture of the Liberal Party... But what he regards as the hard right when it's in itself is manifestly untrue.
3: I mean, what are we to do about these people? Well, look, I don't agree with those statements. I think they're wrong. And uh, Dave Sharma, who's been an outstanding member, uh, has been a really good advocate for that area in Wentworth. And so if you lose him or you lose Falinski, um, you're just going to undermine the ability of the Liberal Party to maintain its position as the big tent. I mean, mm. the party's been successful because it's been a great big tent people with different views, and so we don't want to lose people like Sharma and Flinsky.
1: But there are many people in the Liberal Party complaining now that they're not entitled to express certain views. It's sort of a one-idea party, it tends to be. I mean, Turnbull's vitriolic speech in America, in that speech he shamelessly refused to say whether he would vote Liberal. Now I say to the Liberal Party in Canberra, more fool you lot, you made him leader twice. I mean. What's the agenda here when teal independents are targeting seats held by smaller
3: Liberals, Andrew? Well, I mean, they obviously want to want to be in a position to be kingmakers so they can support an Albanese minority government, which would be a disaster because they ought to have their own personal issues they want to bring to the table and their drag... Albanese ran like a, like a rag doll. So it, w- it would be a disaster.
1: But for climate change, now they can't bring themselves to admit that China's annual increase, increase in carbon emissions would totally negate anything we could do, even if global warming or climate change, whatever you call were proven to be caused by human activity. I mean, they've got no policies on tax reform, defence, the economy, immigration. Perhaps that's why Andrew Turnbull is supporting them because he had no sensible policies on any of those issues either.
3: Well, look, they're certainly not a party of government, but as I say, it would be a disaster if they got the minority government because uh, Albanese would be dragged around like a rag doll and it's the worst possible time for us to have that sort of uncertainty. Just a final comment from Mm. you, Andrew. This is Senator Andrew Bragg, a New South Wales senator.
1: Going around the country as you must sort of every day, as in fact I do, looking at seats, Mm. Uh, a dreadful poll today where the gap between Labor and the Coalition has widened in the news poll. And of course, in South Australia, the news poll had changed their methodology and they got it right. How do you see things around the country?
3: Look, I think it is going to be tough, but the election campaign has shown that Mr Morrison is a more substantial figure than Mr Albanese. He knows the policies, he knows the stats, uh, he knows what the unemployment rate is. So my hope in the last couple of weeks is that people focus in on the, the choice and I think we have a better offering. Is, is Scott
1: Morrison himself an issue here?
3: Well, look, I mean, I think that he has provided very strong leadership during a very turbulent time and uh, people will look at the choice between Mr Albanese and Mr Morrison and they'll see that one is a more substantial figure who knows the policies.
1: Just back to the teal before you go, these independents, if Holmes Accord is backing these people and they're all singing off the song sheet, aren't they a party in themselves and shouldn't
3: they be registered as such? Well I think that they're holding themselves out to be a group of independents but of course they're coordinated by Mr Holmes at Court um, who shamelessly uh, is too afraid to run for Parliament himself and thereby wants to be a puppet master in the background but I mean it's effectively a party uh, in its own right. Hmm. Good to talk to you. It's, uh, It's
1: going to be a pretty tough next 10 days I would have thought but I think the point that you make about the Charities Commission is absolutely valid and something has to give on all of this, surely. These are people parading as a charity and supporting political parties and political ideologies, which the Charities Act expressly forbids. Senator Andrew Bragg. Thanks, Al. Well, the polls today provide a bleak picture for the Morrison government. And while polls in the recent past have been unreliable, if not completely inaccurate, the recent South Australian election indicated that the pollsters have changed their methodology and the South Australian polls were spot on. So where do things stand? Well, on a two-party preferred, it's 54-46 to Labor, and the gap is widening. With less than a fortnight to go, the coalition is struggling in at least 10 seats across Australia, which brings us to the seat of Gilmore in New South Wales, held by Labor with a margin of 2.6%. Fiona Phillips is the Labor member. She is a formidable opponent. She has a Bachelor of Economics from the University of Newcastle and a Master of Business from the University of New South Wales. You might recall she defeated the Liberal drop-in candidate, Warren Mundine, at the last election. She has significant contacts in the electorate. She was raised on a dairy farm. Well, into this mix comes what many are describing as the glamour candidate, Andrew Constance, for the Liberal Party. He is immensely well credentialed for this electorate, having held the state seat of Bega for 18 years. He's a former New South Wales treasurer, and infrastructure minister, a transport minister. And I saw the phenomenal work firsthand that he did in what became a veritable mess, the City Light Rail project, which damaged hundreds of small businesses. And Andrew Constance was thrown the hospital pass by the Berejiklian government to deal with these people. And he did. He heard them and he listened to them. Then, of course, came the black summer firestorms of 2019, 2020 that took lives and destroyed thousands of homes and properties in his electorate and beyond. Andrew Constance was there every minute of every hour of every day, I know. I flew down to be with him. The Prince's Highway runs through his electorate. He delivered upgrades to the Prince's Highway, to local roads and bridges, and now he's offering himself to go to Canberra and he joins me from the beautiful Berry on the south coast. Andrew Constance, how are things going?
0: Well, it's, uh, it's raining again, unfortunately, so... Our poor dairy farmers are doing it as tough as they do normally in drought time because their herds productions are down and we've got more rain today. So, you know, the the community uh, is sick of the rain. Um, So any glamour of sunshine you can bring, uh, it's going to be welcome. But, yeah, look, people are positive and, um, you know, it's just... I'm just getting out there and enjoying myself and, and just making this about the community and so we're talking uh, not big about big areas, the lovely parts of
1: Australia. Could I say to people who are watching us all over Australia, Nowra, Bomberry, Kayama, Miltonala, and the areas around Jarvis Bay and Bateman's Bay. These coastal communities, Andrew, which dot the electorate, are popular destinations for retirees and holiday makers. What are their concerns?
0: well it, it all comes back to a couple of things uh, just the state of the local roads uh, through to the fact that many of, of those people are on fixed incomes so you know when you see volatility in in petrol you know that that can break a person uh, so you know we, we're very sensitive to that uh, given the very nature of our retiree base and our pensioner base um, you know we're we're not you know a, a glamour glamour area but we have the most beautiful parts of Australia and um, you know, we, we've got this beautiful community, uh, as, as you saw when you came down to the fires, when you met with so many uh, people, They're just wonderful Australians, just wanting to get by without the influence of government and interference of government in their everyday lives.
1: Absolutely. Uh, just for the benefit, again, of our viewers across Australia, uh, there are, I think, about 59 polling places, or there were in 2019 in this electorate of Gilmore. Labor, in 2019, won a two-party preferred vote in 49 of the 59 places. So you've got a tough task in front of you. Uh, It seems to me, though, after your phenomenal efforts during the bushfires, and he's not listening to this, I'll tell my viewers here, uh, I thought it was gonna kill this bloke. He just did far too much. He was there night and day. So I suppose now the spin-off is everybody in the electorate knows you, don't they?
0: Yeah, it wasn't a good way to get known. Um, but, you know, we've got a lot of personal journeys which people are taking in terms of their fire recovery. And it's still happening today, Alan. We've we've still got people who are dealing with builders and insurers who haven't yeah. been able to get their homes rebuilt, uh, cool. living in shipping containers. And, you know, I was there during the fires, obviously, uh, but I've got every intention of staying the course and being with my community as long as I can be because mm. there's a big task ahead. Could, um, yeah. And, you know, for me... You know, good resilience within communities is what matters. Mm, He's a good man. You're a
1: good man, Andrew Constance. You skipped over that point. Still living in shipping containers.
0: Yeah, I I met a couple only a month or so back who were still dealing with an insurance company. And in their case, their house hadn't burnt to the ground. They weren't able to live in the house and it was still standing. And there'd been eight scope changes uh, through the last two years in terms of what was to be paid out. Um, and still not resolved, and yet they're still in the shipping container yes. at the front on the front lawn. I, well, that's you know, why. That, that's,
1: that's why. Kind of that's why we it. need. That's why we need your voice in Canberra, because this is also happening now with the victims of floods, isn't it? And you have this unique insight as to how this should be dealt with. I suppose all this heightens the cost of living crisis, doesn't it as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, look, you know, country people are pretty resilient. They know. know if you're going to get those big firestorms you might necessarily see a fire truck on your front lawn and uh, you know the thing that's worried me the most about it is that you know there's this well-being issue that all of us are facing i mean you know my personal struggles and the consequences of ptsd after that event um you know we've got thousands of australians it wouldn't matter if you've lost everything in the floods in you know queensland and the northern rivers through to those fire events. Yeah, you know, people do have this sense of abandonment and, and politics has got to change around this because without the appropriate voice, you're not going to be able to get the results and people aren't going to heal. And, you know, everything from being able to attract insurance for a business who wants to set up in regional Australia is near impossible now. And, you know, I, I feel that we've got to be able to, you know, lift the country. Um, I think the, the adversarial nature of what we've seen, just it's, it's causing a huge disconnect for people. And, We've got to change it. There's no doubt. It's got to be changed.
1: Good and you, well, I'm telling you out there, viewers, this is the bloke who will change it. He's got a big heart and I guess you'll be saying to them, Andrew Constance, that you were there in the past and you'll be there in the future. I'll let you go. He's been campaigning all day from the beautiful Barry. Stay out of the rain and good luck. We wish you well. You have, I'm saying to viewers as well as to the man himself, he has this rare combination, rare in politicians, genuine compassion for those who suffer and a willingness to listen to those whose voice is rarely heard. So, Andrew Constance, I wish you well. After all the battles you've fought for strugglers, it strikes me you're the ideal man to continue the battle for them in Canberra. Good luck in all you do.
0: Thanks, Alan. Good night.
1: There he is, Andrew Constance, the Liberal candidate for the difficult-to-win seat of Gilmore on the south coast of New South Wales. Well, before we go, we had the National Senator Matt Canavan on the show last Thursday. If you missed the interview, I urge you to go to adh.tv, click the Watch Now button, and you'll find last Thursday's episode there. It is a must watch. He crossed to us from a paddock in air, North Queensland. There he is. This bloke can speak on just about anything, and unlike many in the Parliament, he doesn't require notes. Matt Canavan is one of the most effective politicians in this country, yet he isn't offered a portfolio. In the public arena, he's one of the few willing to argue the case against net zero. He calls it madness on stilts. The 41-year-old who will be campaigning in the Hunter Valley this week has said, and I quote, there's too much focus on first-world problems of changing your gender or changing the climate. For people who worry if there's enough left on the credit card to pay the power bill this month, these are luxury goods. Well, What about this? Asked whether he was concerned that his comments would blow up the chances of so-called moderate liberals who are being challenged by these teal independents. Matt Canavan replied, and I quote, Trent Zimmerman's prospects at the election are just a little bit less important than whether or not we can keep the lights on in this country for the next decade. Unquote, he went on. I didn't get into politics to get jobs for people in my own political party, people who wear blue shirts. I did it to create jobs in regional areas to protect our country, and fight for things I believe in." I can hear the public cheering. Do we seriously have a Liberal National Party that's unwilling to debate or cost this absurdity simply because they want people like Trent Zimmerman to hold his seat? The punter wants to know what on earth these climate change policies mean for them. Does it mean there's no more air travel? Does it mean that government will tell them what car they can or cannot drive? Will they need to install a charging station out the front of their home? People like Trent Zimmerman, who's on over 210000 as a federal backbench MP, wouldn't need to sacrifice a thing if net zero targets were aggressively pursued. But the people in regional Australia will sure sure as hell know about it. It's never the city slicker who suffers from these feel-good virtue signalling policies. It's always the families who are juggling a million costs who suffer or blue-collar workers or the poor farmer. As Senator Canavan subbed it up, The Coalition has, quote, fought elections on this stuff. We have fought against radical climate change activism and carbon taxes and won every time, unquote. Yet here was Scott Morrison in Glasgow last year bowing to this nonsensical rubbish all because he thought it would win him votes. He's forgetting one thing. Those who voted for him in 2019 didn't vote for this stuff. It was the brilliant British commentator Charles Moore who wrote last year, There is almost no chance the world will suffer climate catastrophe in the coming decade, but there's a clear risk that millions of our citizens will start to shiver both literally and economically if our energy supply becomes both punitively expensive and intermittent, unquote. That is the true definition of net zero. That's it for me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night on ADH.TV at 8pm. Thanks for your company and good night.